Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Deborah Whitkiss. Deborah is the Chief Operating Officer at Insight Legal Software Limited, a firm which provides award-winning software including legal accounts, practice management and case management systems designed very specifically for solicitors. Deborah, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Good morning, Scott. Thank you very much for having me on the programme. It's my pleasure, Deborah. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is first and foremost to establish your take on leadership. So if we explore that word leader initially for a second, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. So what should a leader be in your perspective? Thank you, Scott. That's um, it's an interesting question. I think leader and leadership um, can mean different things in different contexts, um, and perhaps where you're talking about an individual um, and a company, because um, as an individual, um, leadership to me means giving direction, giving guidance. Um, it means being um, being a leader yourself, um, setting an example to your colleagues, your peers, um, from, from your other members of staff, setting a good example, and um, and setting and leading the correct way forward. Um, as a company, being a leader can perhaps mean being the best in your market, the best in your space, um, and setting an example for perhaps what other companies aspire to be. And if we think about sort of your own leadership style from a people management perspective, how would you describe that? As a leader, I try to set a good example. I try not to ask any of my team or any of the staff to do something that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself or something perhaps that I wouldn't be able to do myself. That's quite interesting. And um, if we think about the fact that, of course, as an employee, you can sort of look above you within a business for sort of direction and almost inspiration in a certain sense. It's a little bit different when you're the person who is an executive, a CEO who's sort of at the top of the tree. Um, Where would you look to for inspiration in your case as and when you need it? Oh, I look everywhere within our company for inspiration from our apprentices who come in every day with enthusiasm and being keen to learn. They just want to take on everything and learn from everybody around them. Um, And I think that can set a great example. Every day is a learning day for everybody in our business. And whether you are the newest member of staff or you've been with the company from the outset, you can still always learn. Um, So I do have um, our CEO and our chairman who I learn from every day as well. Um, but uh, yeah, just as much them as our apprentices and our other members of staff too. Do you think it's really possible to develop into an effective employee and indeed an effective leader without that learning experience and maybe trying things, getting one or two things wrong and then embracing that as a learning curve? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, I would, I would very much say that you need, to, you need to try things. You need to sometimes make mistakes. Obviously, we try to get things right first time, but um, but you won't always do that. You need to try something that's perhaps a little bit out of the comfort zone or a little bit different. Um, and the way, the best way to learn from that is then to to revise what you've done, um, to to learn from it, and to revise the process so you can go back and start again and get it right the next time. 
And when we think when we think about learning, of course, we are going through one of business's greatest ever learning curves. I think it's fair to say the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic and how that has forced the hand of industry to adapt and innovate in order to uh, survive, really. Um, is there anything in your profession that you've learned as a business leader over the last few months as you've sort of adjusted to the new reality that COVID has brought about? Gosh, yes, so much. Um, we've uh, we've actually been quite pleased to see that some of the things we were doing already have proved to be the right approach. So there's been some sort of great reaffirming of our procedures and processes being the right decisions. Um, but also we've uh, yeah we, we've learned and made some adaptations as well. One of the things which we found um, has been very important is making sure that our staff are able to work from other locations. We're a technology company, so we were very lucky in that we already had a lot of that technology at our fingertips, um, but it's something that we've embraced and uh, been able to work very well with. It's also been very important to us to know that we need to look after our staff, um, knowing that we need to keep in touch with them. We need to make sure that everybody is motivated and on board, and we need to make sure that we stay in touch with our customers as well. It's something that we've always tried to be very proactive in, keeping in touch with our customers rather than just waiting for them to call us if they need something for us to be able to reach out to them as well. And that's been even more important so that everybody knows that we're still here and open for business. And we've heard some incredible stories within business and, of course, also from the front lines and how people have applied themselves during this period and really brought the best out of themselves in a time of adversity. When it comes to, of course, Insight Legal, have you been inspired by what you've seen from those around you as well, just as much? We have, yes. Uh, we, we do like to work very closely with our customers and we've inspired, been inspired by a lot of them. Um, so we work with law firms and we've found that obviously it's been a very challenging time for law firms as much as any industry with some areas of law really just grinding to a complete halt. So conveyancing, for example, with house sales and purchases being just simply impossible during the worst times. We've really been inspired by how people have embraced change, have um, have taken on these challenges and really made the best of it. I think now we're starting to see the, the green shoots, um, but we really see those in the areas where people made the most of their time. So the firms which did go through a period of not having as much work available to them, they sowed their seeds then. They sowed the seeds in spring and now we're coming into summer. They're actually seeing all of that start to blossom. And we've been really, really impressed with uh, many of our customers and other law firms actually within the industry and how well they've persevered and gone on to succeed. And of course, everybody's talking about the new normal and what that might bring with it as we move into the next stage of the uh, the pandemic, as it were. Um, through this lockdown period, do you think that any of the things that have become the norm will end up becoming permanent parts of the way that we function and do business in this country particularly with regard to our working practices yes i'm sure you're right there i think it will be very much more flexible in terms of working location and um, whereas before everybody was very much office based i think we'll see a little less of that maybe not all of the time but i think people will think twice about it now people will always consider their options whereas the the obvious choice before may have just been to jump on a train or in a car and go and meet with somebody now people have got other options, which I think are going to be very seriously considered. Um, for us, we've always delivered training, um, both on-site and online. So we've always offered webinar training. But I think we're going to see a greater take-up of that now, rather than people just assuming that they needed to have a trainer to come to their offices. 
um, the same with sales demonstrations as well. Whereas before, face-to-face was the default option. Um, now, very much, I think people would consider doing this um, as a webinar, maybe a Zoom call. This is something I think will just become a little bit more normal. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, uh, for sure. And considering that, of course, you've had a great deal of experience, not just in running the business pre-pandemic, but also now of crisis management, if you'd like to call it that as well. Um, If you could actually give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leading role within a business, what advice would you actually give them? I think really you need to look at the the people that you're serving, um, the industry that you're serving, and really just question everything, question why you do things in that way. I think really the pandemic has made us do that, not just do what we've always done, but to question why we're doing it that way. Is it the best approach or is it just what's gone before? Um, we found very much that our sales approach has um, has been successful. Uh, we, we have still been selling, selling our software throughout the pandemic, despite the fact that you might think it would be very difficult to do. But that's because we take a very much consultative approach um, and we we try and um, actually consult with the people who may want to buy software from us and look at what they need and why. So I think it's the why that's important. You know, look at why you do what you do and how you do it. Um, and, um, and you will make a success of things that way by questioning um, and then only carrying on um, once you know you're working in the best way, not just the way you always have. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, Deborah. And thinking about the future now and what that might um, hold as we do adjust to the challenges of the new normal, what is next over the next year for yourself and for Insight Legal Software? And what do you really hope to achieve in that time as we move through COVID and hopefully look toward the longer term future? So we very much hope that more more law firms will look at adopting legal software. Now, of course, you'd expect me to say that, but I think these times have really proved that law firms can take advantage of technology and they can become more successful themselves by doing just that. We've always said that we don't want to just push our software onto people. We very much shy away from a pushy sales approach. It's just not our style. And we want to very much carry on with that, consult with firms um, to, to look at them taking on the software. And I'd really love to see more firms adopting the technology and making themselves as adaptable, as flexible as they possibly can be. Um, None of us quite expected to be in this position. I think if three, six months ago anyone had told us this, we perhaps wouldn't have believed them. But it's going to mean firms looking ahead and looking to the future and seeing what's ahead now for, say, the next three and six months and three and six years, really, to see what's coming up for them. And I'd love to see firms being able to um, to take on board the technologies and just prepare themselves for any other future situation which may come up and surprise us just as this one has. And I think given the role that technology has played during the lockdown period, it's certainly going to have a role to play um, in future um, as well. Um, Deborah, I've got to say, I mean, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme uh, this um, morning. It's um, it's just a shame that we don't actually have more time um, because we could discuss this long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, But considering how insightful it's been having you join us on the air today, I think it would actually be fantastic to have you back on with us in a few months' time to catch up on how things are getting on behind the scenes at Insight Legal. But secondly, as well, to assess exactly what has changed in the time between and understand what that new normal is really looking like and how we're adapting to it as a whole. Absolutely, yes. I'm always happy to share information on how we're doing, what's working, what's not working, perhaps. So, yes, I'd be very happy to come back and join you again, Scott. Thank you.
It would be a real pleasure, Deborah, just as today has been, of course. Um, and until we do speak again um, in future, which I'm sure we will do, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because it's fair to say that we're certainly still not out of the woods with this one yet. No, indeed. Thank you, Scott, and you too. That was Deborah Wickis speaking, Chief Operating Officer at Insight Legal Software. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and former Labour MP and Secretary of State. Um, he rose to prominence during his political career to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all in spite of being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett. And all of that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists 
is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said 
why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. 
in some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shut, cut, uh, shut down, 
Um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be the prolonged I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? 
I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a 
a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says 
that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.